The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Schools, shops, restaurants, theaters, offices, apartments, a self-contained community. A giant step forward in urban reawakening. A bright new jewel in Metropolis's crown. Mr. Luther, aren't you worried about making such a large investment in the West River area at this time? Yeah. No. The West River is currently a blight on the face of our fair city. Lex Harbor will change all that. Well, how do you respond to accusations that coercion was used to pressure the city council to approve this project without appropriate study? Well, I don't respond to accusations, Mr. Kent. I'm more concerned with results. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, October 9th, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Al Gretzky. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number to call to reach us, or you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today our subject is going to be the London Municipal Election, which is certainly becoming an interesting one to watch, especially given recent developments in the race and the fact that there are so many incumbents from councillor to mayor not running this time around. So... Uh, Al, I understand. Some of the topics we're going to be talking about today, in fact, is at the end of the show, we'll be talking about uh, the a mayoralty candidate review. Yep. And we'll be talking uh, about socialism. Is London a socialist haven for socialist experiments, according to Paul Van <laughs> Meerbergen, which got mentioned in the... Uh, it's heading that way. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, I understand we're going to be talking about are we becoming like a Hong Kong, Kong democracy, if Absolutely, I can say that. Absolutely, that's in the second set. And uh, you want to start off with a review of I, the well, Kings actually, Mills deal. Well, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to uh, talk about a rebuttal letter, which I never actually sent, and uh, then I'll get into the Hong okay. Kong issue. Uh, the uh, the first uh, issue I want to talk about, uh, everybody has probably figured uh, it's been put to bed and those who steered it through and tucked it in, we're saying nothing more to see here. Just move along, move along. And that's the Kings Mills Fanshawe deal. On August the 29th of this year, the uh, London Free Press printed a letter penned by our temporary council appointed just to fill in the gap mayor, Joni Beckler. It was at the time of printing a strong plea to the citizens of London to make the case uh, for more money for Fanshawe College to purchase King's Mills. As the mayor wrote, and I quote, obfuscation of the facts and political interference on this project is at a level I have not seen in all my years on council. I had to chuckle when I overheard someone say, then the lady ain't been paying attention. Um, <laughs> In response to the letter entitled Obfuscation <coughs> uh, Conceals Facts, I wrote a rebuttal intending to send to the free press. However, the question of the rebuttal's relevance became moot when Dennis I, Denise I consulted with my constituents, Brown, changed her vote, and the motion to give the funds was passed. Uh, at the uh, point, I did not think I would have an opportunity to comment on the article because the issue had been settled. Much like global warming, we now had consensus. And much like global warming, the facts of the purchase are getting uh, darker and darker all the time. So, 
back to why now after such a long time? And there's some compelling reasons. Since the Fanshawe deal had been struck, there's been some interesting facts to appear. Did you know that the actual cost of buying just the building is 4.2 to 4.8 million dollars, depending on who you talk to, for that space that Fanshawe will occupy? And uh, the cost is just the beginning. You have to add the cost of demolition, the cost of removal of the asbestos, the cost of structural support for the buildings on either side so they don't collapse. In a video of a council meeting, it was stated that the actual cost, including all of those items, will be $16 million. Now, why give you all those facts? Since the deal was struck to buy King's Mills, a private investor purchased another building downtown that would be the Honest Lawyer Building. And the price? Well... $950,000. That's right, less than $1 million. Compared to 4.2 or 4.8 million, depending on who you talk to. Before we have some people out there losing their collective minds, yes, the honest lawyer is smaller. It's around 11,000 square feet as opposed to Kings Mill's 17,000 square feet. Even taking into consideration the size difference, there's a major disparity between the two prices. It brings into question the oft-made comment by council on their due diligence, uh, which I will uh, touch on later. Then uh, there's another very interesting number that someone sent to me, and that was the fact that the LDBA ran a deficit uh, at the, uh, in 2013 of over $49,000. Uh, I just want to know, how does an organization that promises to come up with one million do that at a time they're in a deficit position? Um, is it that those downtown businesses that would seem to be the beneficiaries of future prosperity are really going to be the beneficiaries of future tax hikes to provide uh, that promised funds? Oops, didn't <laughs> see that one coming. Another reason I reconsidered is less tangible. It's, uh, it was actually a response to a letter I posed at the Seniors uh, Organization All Candidates meeting. And that response that I got was interesting from both the audience and the candidates. It was in regard to the spending of tax dollars on Kings Mills and on the proposed Performing Arts Center. What I did was I asked those who supported the two deals to stand up. And while they were standing, I pointed out to the audience that they could now see those who were willing to spend taxpayers' dollars and those seated who would respect that money. This brought much applause from the audience and a lot of explaining, once again, from those who were standing and uh, supporting. It demonstrated to me, anyway, that though the vote went through, there might be lingering doubt around the city. So, for the rest of the segment, I'll talk about that rebuttal letter that I wrote. Since the segment lasts a little bit longer than a rebuttal letter uh, would have taken, uh, it allowed me the opportunity to explain fuller on more of the points that the mayor made. And I began the uh, article this way. <clears throat> to obfuscate or not to obfuscate, that is the question. Whether it is nobler to be forthright and give clear and concise answers, or carry on misleading to reach our goal is what we struggle with. Apologies, WS. Let's go through some of the points to see just who is clear and who is obfuscating. Point one. 
The mayor begins by stating that Fanshawe has an aggressive growth program. Well, good for them. But isn't that a rather redundant statement? Is this not what every school of higher learning is doing? Besides, what has that got to do with downtown? Well, glad you asked, Al. Uh, that's the setup, planting the seed that with growth, there may well come a time we will need more money. Hmm. You Point can bet two. on that. <laughs> <laughs> Point two. In a lengthy explanation, which I will paraphrase and cherry-pick the comment I need, I'm just beating everyone else to the comment. Uh, the mayor claims it was clear that investing in the downtown partnership, City Fanshawe, would cost the city uh, $20 million. I'm sorry, if it was so clear just a short while ago, why are we at $30 million? Just another example. The city councils are not qualified to get into the venture capital market. Is that how it worked in all the other cities that are doing so well? Did it cost them $660 per square foot to build? Now, point three. Here's one of those figures lie and liars figure statements. There will be 1,600 net new students, net new to downtown maybe, but they are presently attending Fanshawe on Oxford, which makes them transfers, not new students, to London. Guess that makes them net old to somewhere else. Sucks to be somewhere else for council interest. Point four. The point here is that one of those where you quick pass the facts, where the college originally asked for 10 million, but the BIA cut that to a mere nine, sold me in instantly. Point five. <laughs> This point touched on the explanation of the thoroughness of the search. Has anyone other than those in the loop seen the thoroughly researched reports on all the locations? All we get is trust us. We did due diligence and checked all the possibilities. The claim is also given on the independent checking of the numbers. Another trust us. I, for one, do not believe in the old trust us theory when it comes to tax dollars and politicians and for good reason. What's the debt again? Let's see. 400 million plus and payments of 66 million a year. You know, point six. The funds will be coming from Economic Development Reserve Fund to be used for this type of a project. Excuse me? They knew this a long time ago. They were going to buy Kings Mills. Therefore, there will be no new increase in taxes for the school. Uh, maybe not for the school, but what about the increase in taxes to replace the money for the infrastructure job it was probably intended for? That is not mentioned anywhere, Bob. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Point, seven. Why. <laughs> <coughs> Point seven. This is another of those maybe they won't notice statements. Uh, to recover the $60,000 uh, in taxes that Kings Mills used to generate, the college will be giving the city $150,000 a year. That's $75 per student. Now, sounds good until you realize that, as I pointed out in point three, there are no new students. This is not new money. This, for the time being, is only a transfer of an existing program. Point eight. The best obfuscation comes after she quotes the cost of the uh, $66.2 million turnkey. Now, Turnkey means, now look this up, designed, supplied, built, or installed, fully complete and ready to co uh, operate, which she admits will be the cost, $66.2 million. Yet, she only quotes the construction cost of $37.9 million to get her $375 per square foot. No, Mayor, 
if you're talking about a turnkey situation, then you have to include the total price. Therefore, the cost per square foot is $660. It's not erroneous. It's factual. Point nine. All, for all of those who listed uh, they support the project, I will say it again. Put your money where your mouth is. Not part of it, all of it. Leave the taxpayers out of it. If this is such a no-brainer, guaranteed investment, what's holding you back? Finally, a comment. Damn it, Londoners, where is the entrepreneurial spirit this city talks about? And when did the future stop standing on its own two feet? Council is beginning to look more and more like pandering parents that are afraid that success will not occur without their support. Will someone down there get a backbone and just say, make it work without taxpayers' money for a change? Thank you. Okay, that's, uh, that's my rebuttal letter. Okay, thanks, Al. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now, and we're going to return the conversation, and to the conversation, <coughs> after this break for a smile. Be back after this. This year, the unemployment rate in Portland hit 12%. 12% of us are out of work. That's 1 in 8. 2 in 16. 7 in 56. Every politician has a plan, but nothing seems to work. Work. We need to work. 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 We need to work. But now, there's hope. Imagine a Portland with 100% employment. 100% employment. A Portland where we all have jobs. Completing each other sentences. Some of us get paid to start a sentence. And the others get paid to finish it. To finish it. Kids. Couples. Grandfathers. Musicians. Cyclists. Artists. Stupid heads. Crumbums. Dweebs. Sluts. Soccer cousins. Idiots. People who are not good at re reading. Everyone. Paid to be in a commercial. Where all we, we have to do is complete each other's sentences. 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 Each other's se No, I don't need to do that. You just have to complete the sentence, sir. I don't have to complete anything. $500. Finish your own sentence. Ah, oh, damn it. Mr. Mayor. Hey, I just got back from Baltimore. Great, that's a great city. It's a great city. Mayor Rawlings Blake took me to an Orioles baseball game. Unbelievable. What do you say, a baseball game? It's a baseball game. Oh, that's, that's so great. great. Wow. Fun. Congratulations. Yeah, great. Hey, you know what we need missing? A baseball team. Oh. Hi. A major league baseball team. All right. Right? Get one. Yeah, go for it. I want you guys to help me put it together. Wait, Fred and I? Us? Yeah, I trust you. You guys know what Portland needs. We don't know anything about it. Well, when I saw you, it just hit me, and I thought, yes. I saw the baseball game in Baltimore. I thought of you guys, and it was like, here we are again. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Right? And sure. I think we, we communicate well together. Say, well. Hey, Heather, can I get a bagel? I mean, don't you think we communicate well together? Yeah. I agree. Oh, right? Look at this. Look at then this. Then let's do this. All right. Wow. Thanks, Heather. All right. All right. Thank you. See you later. Bye. That. I have no idea. I mean, I don't even know where to start. That's like a super tall order. Yeah, we could do it, I guess. Oh, I could... Fred, Carrie, I just thought of the name for the team. The Portland Thinkers. Wow, clever. <laughs> That's great. 
Well, there we go. Uh, that's just like uh, city councils probably everywhere. Uh, someone coming up and saying, hey, I got a great idea that's way above my expertise, so let's just do it. Yeah. Um, second segment, uh, I'm going to go back to the uh, mayor's election, and it'll be a part two of what I covered on the last show I was on, and that's the concerted effort of the media, and let me add special interest groups, to push chosen candidates in this municipal election at the expense of fairness to all, and by relating what occurred at a real event. I'm going to show how unbalanced coverage could possibly be undermining our political system. Now, to recap, uh, through efforts of these groups, in my humble opinion, certain of the candidates, especially in the mayor's race, are receiving manifest coverage filled with glorious accolades, while others are simply being cast aside and virtually being ignored. My reason for pointing this out, as I will show later, is my growing fear that this will lead to what I call selective voting. That is where the voter is being subtly led to only examine certain individuals to vote for. The logic is, if you only show certain candidates are worth their consideration, voters will only spend their limited efforts on those persons. Devilishly simple. Full disclosure here, I am supporting Arnon Kaplansky, and I am not pointing out the problems here because he's not one of the chosen ones. Rather... I am dismayed that there is even a list of chosen ones at all. It is this type of uneven representation of people and facts to the public that will eventually lead to the loss of our freedom to vote for any candidate and instead leave us with only being able to vote for certain or chosen candidates. Let's think Hong Kong on that one. Mm -hmm. And if you don't think that that's a possible scenario, you need to give your head a shake. Don't misunderstand me. Now, I'm not saying that people cannot have opinions. But what I am saying is that those who are in a position to sway votes because of their position should at least declare that swaying is what they are doing. And those in the media need to acknowledge their part in this problem as well. Now, to make sure that everyone is grasping the severity of what I'm talking about, let me make this crystal clear. We are allowing one of our precious freedoms, one that has been bestowed upon us by centuries of individuals, paying the ultimate price to be taken away from us. And what freedoms do you ask? The freedom of being able to vote for the candidate of our choice. And this is not occurring openly, this, this loss of freedom. No, this freedom is being erased bit by bit, stealth-wise. And here's how it's being done. You're being encouraged by others to rely on them to make your task of choosing a mayor, for example, an easy one. And as in any endeavor, when you allow others to dictate the terms, you must play by their rules, and invariably you will arrive at their intended outcome. <clears throat> in other words, once they figure out who the best candidate is, they'll let you know. Now, while this effort makes a mockery of the voting system, what is even worse is that the people this cherished freedom protects most of all, the citizenry, are not even offering so much as a whimper in protest. Rather, it seems the effort is being embraced. The, apparently, the apparent apathy of voters is showing no bounds. Now, 
regardless of how many individuals filled papers to, uh, to, for the mayor's chair, uh, regardless of their qualifications, the promotion of the same candidates continued ad nauseum. Am I the only one who sees a problem with this? Would the citizens not be better served by being given information about all of the candidates instead of just the chosen ones? Or at least the majority of the candidates? I mean, how many candidates are there? I guess that's a secret they'll share with us after the election, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Maybe I have this all wrong. Maybe there is no ulterior motive. Maybe it's altruistic. Maybe the reason the media and the special interest groups are doing this, picking the possible winner for you, is that in their ultimate wisdom, the average voter in London is just way too busy to sift through all of the information about so many candidates. And so they have decided to take that task, complex one, upon themselves and make the decision for you. That way, collectively, we are guaranteed to get what is best for us. Maybe... But I doubt it. It's becoming like Big Brother and some futuristic society that unfortunately is getting closer all of the time. They will decide for you whether you like it or not. And by the lack of voter complaints, it would appear they like it. You know, I have a, I don't know if you saw this letter by Douglas McCarthy in the paper yesterday, Al. Debate has a role in democracy. Did you see that? And he says, recently attended a candidate's meeting for Ward 10, and the organizers had to arrange it so each candidate spoke to a topic, but to a different topic. And the reason, they said, is we don't want to turn this into a debate. <laughs> and that's how, that's, how they, that's how they're running campaigns. You can't get to compare points of view, nope. you know. That's what we're going to try and cover later on in the second half of the show. All right. Yeah. Now, I'll describe to you what happened at a recent mayoralty candidate's debate. And that was the, the pillar debate. And it left us uh, wondering if there's a separate system for the chosen and the worthy and one for others less tolerated. Let me preface the following by saying the pillar group had every right to invite whomever they wished to speak at their debate. That is not what I'm discussing. What I question is a stipulation made days before the event on who would and would not debate. That is what, this is what occurred as it's been told to me. Over a month prior to the debate, all of the candidates received an official invitation. The Friday before, they were given the official agenda that stated not all candidates would be allowed to participate in the actual debate. That part of the evening would be restricted to the chosen candidates. Oh, those are my words. I believe the invitation said frontrunners. You know, the likely slash viable slash qualified ones as promoted by the others. While the less desirable ones would be allowed the opportunity to speak for a whole two minutes. And they were to, I guess, gratefully sit down and observe. How ironic that pillar, a group which is founded on the principle of helping all equally, seems to have in this case decided, while we might all be equal, apparently some are more equal than others. Which led me to ask, what was the criteria used to decide who spoke and who didn't in the end? The debate held at the seniors club that I, did, uh, that I attended didn't have any problem allowing everyone to sit at the uh, table and speak. Uh, the event may have gone on a little longer, but it was wonderful. The Rogers debate, it also included uh, all of the candidates 
as have several others. So was it what I feared? Was there even a chance that there were, they were swayed by the promotion of the chosen by the others? We can't know for sure, but the possibility exists, and that is scary. Brings to mind the old saying, not only do we need to do right, we must be perceived to be doing right. And what of voter apathy that I mentioned? Did the individuals who turned out protest by the reports I read? No. There was an attempt to uh, partially rectify the situation, but any effort would have been moot. The point had been made that only some of the invited were deemed worthy and others received short shrift. The response by the media? Ah, what you expected. Obfuscation and omission. As to Pillar, all I can say is, what were you thinking? I mean, Bob, it's kind of like, uh, it's... uh, the, it took me a long time to get to the meat of the subject, but, but I figured that I had to build it out so the listener could truly appreciate the gravity of the situation. Had I simply said that at the debate, the so-called fringe weren't given equal time, people just might shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, what's new? But by explaining what is occurring and how it is occurring, then maybe, just maybe, people will have a different take. Good stuff, Al. You, you know... It's, it's amazing what we're going through to try and revitalize our downtown, and with all the talk about how to do that, I, I personally have long argued that simple street parking with cars able to access storefronts is all that is needed. And, you know, apparently I was more right than I knew, at least in terms of an historical perspective, as presented by Andres Duaney, from whom we will be hearing as we go into our next break. We last featured his clips when Arnon, Arnon Kaplansky was a guest on this show. So in three minutes, or a little more, three and a half minutes, he will explain more about how easy it is to fix downtowns, etc., with almost zero cost. Then you'll hear from a lifetime of municipal planning experts. It makes the whole issue of all the political plans to keep people downtown and to create a people place where they walk seem like utter madness. Let's listen in on this, and then we'll return. Take a town center like this. Now, what's surprising to me when I see a place like this is that it is pathetically easy to achieve this excellence. Pathetically easy. What is so difficult about this? I mean, these are buildings. These are not expensive buildings. This isn't expensive paving. This isn't brick. That's just asphalt. This is just grass. You know, that's a, that isn't some kind of elegant Italian design trash barrel. That's an old thing. These are cars parked right in front. What is so difficult or expensive about this? Nothing. What is surprising is that everything that you see there is illegal, according to the code. (laughs) Everything. You can't live above... First of all, there isn't enough parking, theoretically. Second of all, the setbacks are wrong. Third, you can't live above the store. Fourth, you can't back out on the traffic. On and on and on and on. What What actually happens in our codes is that the bad is easy and the good is difficult. The developers that we come to, that come to us to design new towns, in fact, know perfectly well that that's marketable. They know that people prefer that. In fact, they manifest it every day by the way they they leave their dollars there rather than here. Per square foot, it's much higher in the traditional towns that have survived. The problem is that they have to put up with with the difficulty of 12, 15, 20, 25 variances to achieve this kind of thing and fighting all the way to do that. Obviously, something is completely backwards. 
Now let's look at the, at the, at the offices. <clears throat> this is a flattering um, um, illustration of a modern office park. Uh, this is an existing uh, office uh, situation in Princeton, New Jersey. Now, what you see here, I show this as a rendering because, in fact, uh, the real one is never this good looking, and I'm always trying to flatter it. What you see here is a pedestrian, which, in fact, is a theoretical possibility, <laughs> but is actually impossible to, if you know anything about human nature. And it has to do with what's happening to that pedestrian on either side. Okay? On the first side is you can see that it is, it is unpleasant to be there, not only because there's a semi-trailer truck going by, even a car going by at 25 miles an hour poses a perceived danger to a pedestrian. You do not have pedestrian life unless you have a layer of parked cars on the street. Okay? That can be seen anywhere on earth. Even a place that, is as that it has as strong a pedestrian environment as Paris the city of Paris, when Pompidou removed certain layers of parking in the 1960s to have traffic flow, the retail died on the sides. It's only when Giscard restored it that the, 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 retail, uh, that the retail was recovered. You do not have pedestrian life unless there's the layer of metal between you and the moving car. That can be observed anywhere. Now, traffic people hate these parked cars on the street because what did they do is they slow up traffic, but to which you say, well, to which the answer is, but that is precisely what is necessary here. This isn't a highway in the countryside. This is going through where buildings are. There are buildings here. There are people here. You can't build a highway. You must build an avenue. You see, that's the difference. Hi, can we help you? I'm Beth. Hi. House sitter? Oh, right, okay. We're gonna shut this and we're gonna open the front door, okay? So it's just to let you in, because you can't fit through here. Thank you for house sitting for us. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Wow, this is really nice. It is. It is, yes. This is, this is our kitchen. This is like a living being. I mean, the whole house, you've got to treat it with love and affection and attention. So when is um, trash day? We don't observe trash day. Oh, okay. What do you want me to do with the garbage? Just photograph the bags of trash and send it to us and we'll judge from there. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> we don't observe trash day, say the socially experimenting homeowner characters from the TV show Portlandia. They sound no different from the city of London's Jace Stanford, who, whose consistent propagandist proclamations of how we should sort our garbage seem to have been the main theme of his micromanagement agenda, mainly to not pick up the garbage. <laughs> Just pick up the damn leaves, said one famous local politician whose sentiment on that issue probably played a great part in electing him to the mayor's office some four years ago, Joe Fontana. That and, of course, 0% tax increases. Picking up the leaves and 0% tax increases are still doable. It's just that a tiny percentage of London's municipal candidates actually believe that. Uh, I have to remind our listeners of Orlando Zampronia's warning comments we played on the show uh, the last time we got together, Al, about how all these sinkholes are out there. 
But interesting article in the Free Press on October 2nd, Thursday, by Patrick Maloney, headed Socialist Experiments, question mark. And it read, a vote for Paul Van Meerbergen is evidently a vote against unproven socialist experiments in London. That's the unexpected language the veteran city councillor uses in campaign literature that his, explains his approach to City Hall. And he says if you ask him if anything about anything specific, uh, Van Meerbergen basically said he's just making a general statement about overreaching government, though did cite council's decision to lower the limit for vehicle idling from five minutes to 10 is one example. He says, to me, that's over-regulation. Um, but according to uh, Pat Maloney, he says, uh, well, that's that statement, unproven socialist experiments comments that's drawing attention. And Virginia Ridley, one of his opponents, seized upon it and said, the only socialist experiment I'm conducting is returning phone calls, she said. Well, that's about all I want to read about that in that article. <laughs> Um, but boy, talk about, uh, you know, they, that word socialism is, is a scary word for a lot of people, mostly because they practice it or they are a socialist. You know, socialism is state ownership and control of property. It's counterpart fascism, which is not the opposite of socialism, but merely a different form of it, is state control of property without direct state ownership. Both are forms of totalitarianism, of economic control, and both are incompatible essentially with freedom and democracy. Central planning is the term most often associated with these terms, though in practice central planning is state edict, which is really no planning at all in the common sense of the word. The King's Mills deal could be described as a socialist experiment, especially in light of the fact that the spending of municipal taxpayer money on this kind of project goes well beyond any reasonable municipal governance mandate. Amen. Or as Paul Van Meerbergen put it, it's about overreaching government. That means out of its mandate, not, you know, you can't be doing federal politics at the provincial level or, or at the municipal level. Uh, unions and the unsustainable cost of our police and fire departments are also other examples of socialist experiment. If anyone really wanted to know what a fireman or police officer is economically worth in terms of wages, the only way to discover that answer is to end the labor monopoly. And that's a fascist manifestation of a socialist ideology, is labor monopolies, because it affects the private marketplace. And then find out who is willing to do the same job for less money or the same money without fear of being beaten up by union thugs or shut out of the market by laws created by that mentality. To use either of these words, socialism or fascism, in public debate or discourse is to invite charges of some variant of extremism and worse, to have yourself dismissed as a credible voice in the debate, which I think is the attempt that's going on here. That's why the free press is taking a poke at Van Meerbergen. He's not into socialism or fascism, therefore he must be some kind of kook, right? At least uh, for using those words and, uh, you know, and, and, and not becoming a credible voice in the debate. And I think that's why the free press is taking a poke on, on him, because uh, he's not using words like central planning as he should be. Now, at their root, the words socialism and communism and fascism appear quite benign and innocuous if you really stick to their strict definitions, state ownership and control of private property and state control. Uh, fascism is actually a contradiction since property that's controlled by another, you can't really say you own it, can you? So why have they 
come to mean everything from red Chinese and red Soviet slaughters and wars in human history, while fascism has come to be associated with Nazism, racism, and genocide. Because those are the inevitable consequences, given enough time, of all collectivist thinking and practice. And at the root, the words socialism and fascism are merely descriptions of the relationship between a citizen and his government and the role of property. Both are on the left of the political and moral spectrum, not opposites of each other as is usually misrepresented by lefties everywhere. You can tell them a million times that the Nazis were nationalist socialists and they don't want to hear it. The Nazis were the opposite of socialism, they'll argue. But just because fascists and socialists will fight with each other does not mean they don't think exactly alike. Both have no qualms about using force, though to achieve different ways of controlling the citizenry. Both deny the individual the right to determine his own choices and destiny by controlling the right that enables all of our other rights, the right to private property. Each, socialism and fascism, operate on the principle that property should be in the control of the state. Socialism additionally operates on the principle of state-owned property, also financed at the expense of private citizens. Capitalism, meanwhile, the exact opposite of each of these other two modes of thinking, operates on the principle of private ownership and control of private property, which includes the right to use, buy, sell, or exchange that property at the owner's discretion. It is a system that is essentially made the Western world the wealthy and freest society known to mankind. In a capitalist society, coercion is forbidden even by governments in financial choices and transactions. Socialism and fascism, simply on the grounds of their inherent control of property, always lead to social and economic disaster. Just give them enough time. Coercion is the operative principle of each, which is why they are evil in principle and destructive in practice. There are no exceptions to this rule. So why is a London Free Press writer Patrick Maloney and Virginia Ridley making us issue of the term socialist experiment? Uh, You know, returning phone calls, as Ridley suggests, is not a socialist experiment. It may be social, but it's not socialist. (laughs) It's in this muck of political ignorance about even the most basic of definitions uh, of universal truths and clearly defined terms in which voters are expected to make decisions. But here's something you can usually count on. When someone complains about a word like socialism, communism, or fascism, you can safely bet on the fact that the complainant is one. (laughs) Another word that comes up, partnership, public-private partnership. You hear that a lot, eh? Uh, And that's a term we keep hearing as part of the unsustainability of socialist governments. It's that some form of private-public partnership is a solution to the problem caused by the public side of the partnership, right? This process, public-private partnership, to those who are aware of it through the years, is known as a transition from socialism, which has already failed, hence the appeal to the private sector, to fascism, which is what the pattern has been in history anywhere you see it. When the private sector is in partnership with the government, well, that's no partnership since one of them has a gun and the other one doesn't. One gets to make the law, the other one doesn't. They have to follow the law. So, you know, another way of looking at socialism to fascism is partnerships are a means of one partner eventually taking over the other. And that's, you see that in business, although that's okay in that sense because the government's not forcing it. So when people speak of partners in any relationship, business or personal, what they're really describing are partners of completely different interests who happen to have a common interest on a single ground for a short period of time. 
and the partnership beyond which their interests may be in complete opposition to each other. Alliances made in war and in the Mideast are extreme examples and very clear examples of this. As soon as the common interest or cause disappears, so too does any partnership or alliance. And that's why there's so much instability in the world. You can't build partnerships on competing interests. And with that, we're about to turn our attention to the mayoral candidates in London, who's hot and who's not, as seen through the lens of what is just right, not right-wing, when we return on the other side of this. Oh, uh, come in. Ah, that's exactly how I pictured your apartment. Oh, well, actually, uh, I was thinking of remodeling. Thanks for not blowing my cover. Well, that's what friends are for. Tonight you looked as though you could use one. Lex, what were you doing at the club? I was meeting with a new leader of the Metro gang. She called me. According to her, we have similar interests in the West River District. Oh, I find that hard to believe. Well, so do I, but she talks a good line. Slum clearance, uplifting uh, the neighborhood, micromanagement, growth and prosperity. Do you believe her? Not for a minute. In fact, I think the whole thing was designed to get me to slow down my own plans for reviving the area. She even suggested a partnership of sorts. <laughs> Message for you, CK. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy! Hey, we got you invited to Garner's victory party tomorrow night. Oh, uh, actually, I'm going to the John Doe rave at Club L7. Yeah, but I thought you... Come on, CK, a victory party for President Garner? Like he's gonna win? <laughs> he's right, you know. John Doe's polls just keep rising. And we're no closer to proven fraud or anything else for that matter. <laughs> Interesting. John Doe's polls just keep on rising, says uh, Lois Lane, the Clark Kent from the 1990s TV show Lois and Clark. We played other audio bites from that same episode, Meet John Doe, where a candidate literally named John Doe rises to the top of the polls as everyone's left scratching their heads about who and what John Doe is really all about. Turns out voters were all being hypnotized or brainwashed by some secret ray or something, but in the end, in the end Superman saved the day. The John Doe in this city's current election is undoubtedly Paul Chang. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> a complete unknown until his candidacy. He surged to second place in the latest polls concerning the mayoral race. Now, there are, I think, 15 mayoral candidates running in the city of London, and given that there are fewer than that number of minutes in a normal quarter segment of our show, <laughs> we sure can't cover them all equally. They'd be lucky if I could devote 50 seconds summaries to each of them. So, like any journalist, I find myself limited to picking my top runners, though not on poll grounds. And for the record, despite what some may claim to be my dismissal of the so-called fringe candidates that I so often complain about, I will be voting for one of them that has been so classified. So it's got nothing to do with either my support or lack thereof with regard to the candidate himself. Now, you know, I think that the main candidates that we were dealing with are five of them, not four, as as are sort of positioned by um, the media in general, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, I've listened to all 15 of them um, over the talk shows with um, Steve Garrison, Andrew Lawton. They've all hosted them. 
But all I've got really today with me on this is a bunch of point form notes that I took down as I listened to each, and I've listened to each giving an interview at least twice. So a lot of my observations will be just a quick point of topics of interest of distinction, very much limited by the time remaining in our program today. And so um, I have to begin by saying, Al, I don't know what you think, but of the whole bunch, I think Matt Brown's the worst of the bunch. What do you think? I have uh, agree with you 100% on that. Uh, just, uh, I, I don't know how to explain it, but uh, other than to say, look at the people who are putting him in or attempting to put him in are uh, basically the same people who have pushed and put uh, our illustrious premier in the province. Pretty much. And, and you know, if you look at his basic positions, and I was listening to his interview with Steve Garrison, for example, um, he didn't answer any of the questions that were put to him. Um, how, can, how can I put it? Joe Swan said he wanted to spend, that Matt Brown wants to spend $300 million over the next four years on mass transit projects, etc., which would cause a property tax increase of well over 10%. Now, of course, Matt is already on city council. He's leading in the polls, is a school teacher, has the highest number of volunteers, worked in uh, corporate sales for the YMCA, says he has over 575 individual donors to his campaign um, versus less than 200 for two previous mayors. And, of course, he had his fundraiser at Kings Mills. And um, he avoided. Whom he finally admitted that he's taken donations from Kings Mills. Oh yeah, the, uh, the the sale that he pushed so hard. Yes. Yes, and uh, which is fine here here and there. That's n- neither here nor there really. But uh, it's interesting when he was asked about the appraisal of the Kings Mills property. Um, he said he didn't have the value at his fingertips, and he said that this was interesting. That Fanshawe College investigated 20 downtown properties, and Kings Mills was their choice. And so he's saying that the reason Kings Mills was picked was because that was Fanshawe College's choice, not his. And that's an argument. I'm surprised he hasn't pushed it more strongly in his campaign. He still be- thinks he belie- believes he made the right decision. And um, interesting thing too, a caller Tim noted about the bus system infrastructure, because they're talking about having a rapid transit system, yes. right? And, I, and this is something Matt wants to bring in. And, and Tim noted that only 12 to 20 buses per hour are using the rapid transit bus lanes in London, England, in their rapid transit system uh, who can use it versus over 2,000 cars that can use the same lane in the same period, resulting in a 1% utilization of infrastructure <laughs> for mass transit. Uh, Matt didn't answer the question, but said, uh, quote, the rapid transit system right now is undergoing an environmental assessment. Is there a rapid transit system right now or a plan in place already for this? Has this already this happened? This is part of Vision 20 or London 20 or uh, whatever they're calling it these well, days? That's interesting. And they all talk about having a congestion problem in this city. He says, and the data suggests that this is the direction to go, but he didn't tell us what the data was or what the argument was. And... Um, let me see what else we've got here. Uh, Matt said uh, downtown deserves the city significant investment because it makes a significant investment in the rest of the community and generates 9% of the revenue is against 0.2% of the city's geography, as if geography and finances have anything to do with each tell, other. Tell about the East End who are about to lose 1,600 uh, uh, students. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he says as we grow that tax revenue to 10 and 11 and 12%, it reduces the cost for all of us. Well, no, it never has. All it does is give them more, more money, money to, to spend. spend. <laughs> I don't know where he thinks. Then he says we're in an eco 
economic <laughs> ecosystem, everything's connected. More taxes will mean better roads, better schools, more government, and more spending at the ward level. There you go. You want a tax and spender? Matt Brown's your guy. And you know what he has the guts to say? He says, I don't speak for developers. I don't speak for bu- big business. I don't speak for the unions. I speak for the community. So if you're a member of big business, a developer, or a union, apparently, Matt will not speak for you, even though you're a member of the community. He does say, talk about, though, helping the small business community holding their hand and being with them the whole way. So that in itself is a bit of a contradiction. And I wonder what he means by that. And then there's Roger Carancy. Yeah, he's, of course, uh, has been a previous counselor. Uh, he thinks the number one issue is jobs. That's the thing that we should be focusing on. We need the bulls to transit more buses. He's not a, into a rapid transit system. He would not sell London Hydro, doesn't support the Performing Arts Center, voted against the Integrity Commission, but voted for the Ombudsman to be the London's Integrity Commission because it wouldn't add any cost to the city, but would give the Ombudsman more power, more authority, but without the cost. I don't know. Hasn't he heard that he who pays a piper calls the tune? I mean, it's going to cost us. Don't you worry about that. It already has cost. The Ombudsman already did cost the city a lot of money considering he's free. And, of course, the old thing, mayors cannot create jobs but can set the tables to come to London, etc., etc. Then there's Paul Chang. Now, Chang is the surprise candidate. He's the John Doe candidate of this campaign. Apparently, he's accomplished a lot in his private life, but has been somewhat reluctant to let us know exactly what his resume is and exactly where he worked. Yeah, and and I'm really concerned about that. I mean, if you're uh, an individual who's looking for the top job in the city, I... I'd like to know what your qualifications are, and particularly since he's in second place. And this doesn't seem to be an issue for anyone else. And I don't know. It bothers me, Bob. Yeah, me too. And, you know, citing his successful campaign that has so far put him in second place, Cheng said, get this. The emperor has no clothes, which is exactly the clips that we were playing. That was our theme of our last week's show. And that the public is actually shocked. When someone speaks up and says that something's wrong here. Says he grew up in Hong Kong, where he really knew poverty because as a kid he lived in a dirt field, nothing like the poverty that we have here. And he cites how many world cities have risen from third world status to first world status, while the city of London seems to be heading in the opposite direction. He acknowledges, as we picked on him before, that education is a provincial issue. But then he said, can I not, as the mayor, contact the Minister of Education and use my influence? I don't want to make a study out of it. Kids who live in London are under our protection in an education system that does a lousy job and someone should speak up on their behalf. That's not a bad argument in and of itself. And then then he was asked, how can he bring council members together? I really liked his answer on this. He said, if a councillor comes up with an idea that works, all the credit will go to that councillor. If the idea doesn't work, he will take the blame. He says, that's how you build teamwork, and you know that's true. Um, interesting. He calls, refers to himself as a wealthy guy, has personal security. Um, of course, I, I don't know. I, I don't like it when they say things like, well, we'll take a cut, a cut in pay. You know, yes, yeah. um, That's always a little bit uh, suspect, but it sounds good. But his, his thinking is, as he put it, he says he wants to have other counselors to have skin in the game, as he, as he, as he put it. We, they should feel some pain in their pay if they're not getting the results that they should be getting in some way. Now, uh, so that's, you know, 
that's a fairly positive view, but he's still an unknown in a lot of ways. And like, you know, like so many candidates, we don't get to know them till we elect them. Isn't that true? And then there's Arnon Kaplansky, who I very much like too. And for me, Arnon and Paul are the two that I'm looking at. Um, he's been previously interviewed here on Just Right. He's passionate, loves his community. Um, and of course is running for mayor because after 25 years of trying to create jobs and prosperity for the city, he's always run into unnecessary opposition from City Hall, which is an ongoing story that we hear from practically all of the candidates, though only in passing. For Arnon, this is a big issue that must be resolved and not just talked about, as he as he put it. And And you know, other people are picking on him, well, you're the red tape guy. He says, well, look, at, it's true. You can say that. He says, but that's the source of so many of the other problems that we're dealing with is that people can't get into City Hall and get simple jobs done. By the way, he was the guy that came up with all the facts for the Kings Mills deal, at least as best as they could be collected, pointed out how Fanshawe paid $4.2 million for the building, plus $2.3 to remove the asbestos has to be yet spent, plus $2.7 million to renovate the inside, plus $3 million for the facade. So far, $12.2 million. He says, as a real estate developer, this is his, his opinion. He says, this is higher than Manhattan. <laughs> it's crazy, he said. And... Um, you know, it was noted, too, that neither Swan nor Brown knew the cost of the building. And uh, they said the figures are unknown because it's a private deal, to which Arnon said, well, it's not very private when taxpayers are paying for it, and that's for sure. Apparently, the assessment of the building uh, was like uh, $1,400,000, and it sold for four point two. okay, to give you some idea. And another building that was very similar, The Honest Lawyer, sold for $950,000 only three weeks before. And so there was not enough due diligence. And um, so it's funny that a guy like Arnon, of all the candidates, seemed to be the only one to have the facts and figures at his, to, uh, at his hands. And um, finally, because time's running out, I just got to touch quickly on Joe Swan, who, of course, is another one of the, the tops. Uh, he's been doing a lot of socialist planning, if you might, might want to put it that way, okay. tax rebates for seniors, Orchestra London, Performing Arts Center, all that kind of stuff. Um, he's opposed to the King's Mills deal, however. He was more into the Performing Arts Center, and he wants to attract investment more aggressively to the city. Considers himself a change agent, and I found it interesting that he took credit for building the Budweiser, the Covent Garden Market, the library, some of which are like huge nooses around the neck of the city financially. <laughs> I mean, I don't, obviously he didn't hear Orlando's uh, <laughs> summary of the Budweiser Center that we played again a couple, a couple of weeks ago. He's into continuing with road expansion and to relieve congestion. He points out that the city of Kitchener recently got $750 million from the provincial government to do that and that we should be doing something like that too. So, uh, you know, he would also freeze tax increases to 1%. So, you know, I'd love to cover all the candidates. Was there anything quick you wanted to say, Al, before we go? No, no, not at all. Well, I'm afraid that's the best we can do for you in the limited time and space. We have to offer some facts, plus our impressions of the candidates, whatever the election outcome. The rest is up to you, the voters, in the October 27th municipal elections. Good luck to one and all, especially to the voters and taxpayers in the City of London. That's it for now. We'll be back next week to continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. 
Thanks again, Fraser. Oh, our pleasure, Phil. The Crane family has a long history of political involvement. You know, my wife, Maris, actually has all our servants down at your campaign headquarters licking envelopes. <laughs> Thanks. She'd do it herself, but the poor thing can't produce saliva.